0: Good morning. I am your host, Claudia Shamba, welcoming you to the November 19, 2013 edition of Ask a Leader. Today is the 150th anniversary of President Abraham Lincoln's delivery of the Gettysburg Address, a superb piece of oratory required reading for how it used to be done. Today, my first guest will be Dana Garfin, a postdoc over at UCI's School of Social Ecology, their Department of Psychology and Social Behavior. She's kept her eye on the toll inflicted on us from nationally, internationally covered events like the Kennedy assassination or other you remember where you were when it happened type of traumas. Uh, It was pre-recorded yesterday, so it has a little bit of that topical edge taken off, but I'm so glad that Dana could be available for that interview. Then the second half, UCI, German professor Kai Evers has just the perspective we're seeking about that stash of artwork plundered, stolen, or sidelined during the Third Reich that was discovered recently in a Munich apartment. On Ask a Leader, I won't be looking at the dollar or euro values of that work. No, it's all about the ambiguity surrounding the collection. And while we do all of this, we welcome a KUCI intern, Isha Dubey. Hello, Isha.
1: Hi. How are you?
0: I'm thank you fine, and you this morning?
1: Yeah, I'm good. I'm and I'm excited to be with you.
0: That's good. And are you planning on doing a public affairs show next quarter? Yes, I am planning to do kind of different. Okay, um, what kind? Um, I just want to
1: keep it very, very general and talk about all... Because I've recently moved from India. So... You know, I want to share all those experiences I've had there and I've had here because it's it's funny, interesting, and amazing.
0: All right, I can't wait. I <laughs> yeah. want to I want to know what block it is. I'll uh, we'll sure. get you a promotion so everybody <laughs> is reminded and basketball coverage and other oh. uh, shows, or we'll, people will people be reminded of your show? So, uh, yeah. good luck, that. Thanks you. for joining us. We'll be folks. We'll be right back after a brief station break and hear what Dana Garfin has to tell us. As tributes are paid and as we take stock of what transpired 50 years ago when President John Kennedy was assassinated in Dallas, Texas, I wanted to turn our attention to the important research undertaken at the Department of Psychology and Social Behavior at UCI and how uh, it relates to the commemorations. How do we individually process the trauma of such an event? Covering this is my first guest today, Dana Garfin, Ph.D., with her research on indirect experience of the trauma, what the toll it is on mental and physical health. Dana Garfin is a postdoctoral scholar at the Department of Psychology and Social Behavior, and she's the project director of a study examining reactions to the 2013 Boston Marathon bombings. She completed a B.A. from the University of Colorado and her M.A. and Ph.D. from UCI. Dana's current research focuses on how early negative life events and community disasters are associated with physical and mental health outcomes. Her research projects have included two studies, Psychological Reactions to the 2010 8.8 Magnitude of the Chilean Earthquake, a longitudinal study of psychosocial development in 2,200 British children and a National Science Foundation-funded longitudinal study of how turbulent social events, that is, terrorist attacks, economic crisis, are associated with mental health outcomes. Welcome, Dana, to Ask a Leader.
2: Well, thank you. Thanks for that introduction.
0: Well, yes, indeed. Television in its infancy now, then... Uh, had a huge role in developing John F. Kennedy's political cachet with his telegenic delivery and his presidential debates, his press conferences, and his entire presidential profile, it would therefore, Dana Garfin, seem to have intensified the impact of the televised coverage of his assassination and the unfolding events of those four days, would it not? Tell us what role that the... Early television would have in the whole nation with three broadcast networks have on uh, the kind of trauma that people experience collectively.
2: Right. Well, I think that the role that the media tends to play in these types of events is that they allow us to experience these events together. So, um, you know, before the proliferation of this sort of large scale media coverage, you maybe would read about something or see an image, but you know, in modern time, and certainly um, this has only increased recently. But I think even during the time of the Kennedy assassination, um, you know, there was this event that was videotaped, which could then be subsequently replayed, and these images were widely distributed for the um, throughout the population. And so I think that this allows people to really get the experience, like they may have actually even been there right. during the event.
0: Right. I, mean, I remember. I was just full disclosure. I was about fourth grade and i and i can attest as we talk about this it really did sear in my mind some very vivid impressions i'm not mes- necessarily Dana Garfin thinking about so much the graphic part but just that what a what a sort of irreversible sort of a, 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 a sort of unprecedented kind of a uh, of an event that it was in in the national experience a leader being taken out so it uh definitely that well um let's talk then uh what uh, the people, they had a, there was the Zagruder film, I think, I'm not sure if that was provided right away. Um, there, there, were, um, there were iconic images, and that's been covered all over in the press now. I don't want to repeat what everybody's already been hearing, but we want to talk about what those iconic images have, what role they've played in deepening the traumatic uh, impact on our psyches, on our physiology,
2: well, I think certainly emerging research has um, has indicated that when people are experiencing these images, or even when they hear survivor narratives, uh, they experience this. They can experience this sort of vicarious traumatization. They we see people who were we call this indirect exposure. So whether you heard about this after the event, somebody told you a story, you saw these images. Subsequently, or you saw these events occur live on, like subsequent events occur live on TV, um, we see that people tend to are, often respond, or at least sometimes respond, with these symptoms that originally we thought only could be experienced by people who were directly exposed to the event. So they will experience acute stress symptoms. Um, they will experience anxiety, they will experience post traumatic stress symptomatology and and these, can, these sorts of symptoms can occur for people even who weren 't at the event and and who did not see it in person
0: well, Dana Garvin, tell us what might be uh, predictors for the impacts is it Is it the type of person we are? Is it the connection uh, that 's what i'm when i 'm uh, doing some research on the topic. Some people were talking about in their grief and all that. They, they, one grief doesn't affect them as much as the grief with another person, and they were thinking it was that connection. And I imagine the connection with, the, with Camelot might be a reason for why that indirect experience has such a powerful impact on us.
2: Well, I think that we see, in our research, we've seen a variety of demographic predictors that may predispose somebody towards experiencing distress after a subsequent event, whether it is direct or indirect exposure. Um, Certainly there's been a lot of research that supports a sensitization hypothesis, which basically means that if you've experienced traumatic events in the past, um, similar traumatic events, or sometimes even events that, that are not similar, this can predispose you to more negative reactions following a subsequent event. I think that, you know, people who tend to be anxious, people with prior mental health problems, they do tend to be more at risk. Um, People from lower socioeconomic status can often be more at risk. Women can often be more at risk. Um, So these are the sorts of groups that we see. Uh, They tend to be more at risk for problems when they sort of directly experience an event, and they can also report greater dis- distress after a subsequent
0: event. So there's an index, maybe of vulnerability, and I'm not saying that women are more vulnerable than men, but I think in some of the scheme of things, it is a man's world, folks. <laughs> but that, yeah. that might be a, the predictors, is how they interpret interpret themselves perceive themselves as as a vulnerable individual
2: well and one caveat that I, i will say especially with um with gender effects is that it's always unclear whether women are just more likely to report these kind of symptoms okay so especially with uh with the gender effects you know we always have to acknowledge that that could be a possibility that you know either a men tend to experience these sorts of events differently and b that they may report symptoms differently so
0: So. denial might be a a factor and it's hard for you to get at that
2: yeah that is that is definitely something that's um, hard for us to get at and i think that that's when you mentioned these sort of physiological responses there's an increasing interest in understanding the stress response from a physiological perspective and that can give us a little more insight into how these individual differences in response to stressful events
0: I see how they're actually processing it. Exactly. Well, for those of you who've just tuned in, you're listening to Ask a Leader on KUCI, eighty eight point nine FN in Irvine, streaming around the world around screens and headsets and T V sets on KUCI dot org. My guest is Dana Garfin, a post Doc scholar at UCI examining the effects of indirect experience of trauma, and we're talking like a, a national wide, widely experienced trauma. Uh, as in the such the case of the uh, Kennedy assassination. Well, we're. Um, I, I'm also wondering when I was probing others' uh, perspectives about this is, to what extent does the need to know the why of that occurring. Why, what was the motive for someone assassinating someone? The motive, like you were talking, your work is on the, the Boston Marathon bombings. Does the why have a way of deepening this impact, this trauma?
2: I would say for sure. I would say definitely. So especially, um, we've done a number of studies looking at responses to terrorist attacks. And one thing that these sorts of events um, that's unique about them is there's not necessary is that um, it can really shatter people's assumptions about safety and security and I think perhaps that may have been the case after the JFK assassination as well so you know people feel threatened people feel like the environment that they used to feel very safe around is no longer safe and this creates a feeling of distress this creates a feeling of fear in the population. So I think we may have certainly people may have certainly experienced that after the JFK assassination.
0: And so let's turn to the the kinds of media available to us. Uh, then, as I mentioned earlier, there were only three network uh, television uh, or three networks that were giving us the images. The images and the, the the conversations, and now it's a it's increasingly a, a different show, literally and figuratively. So we have uh, the all this we have social media besides having so many different kinds of 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 uh, media um, uh, news formats. And so, what can you tell us? Uh, how those se- social networks have what's the effect of this? greatly decentralized and, shall we say, more saturating and less filtered kind of content?
2: Well, I think that's a really interesting question, and it's certainly something that we have been increasingly interested in exploring in our own research. And, of course, with social media, things like YouTube, being able to see events as they occur live and see the aftermath occur as it's unfolding... Um, you know, has certainly been something that is of interest to researchers. And one of the uh, recent studies that was conducted after Hurricane Sandy suggested that social media use in particular was associated with stronger post-traumatic stress responses. And, you know, this, this part, we can't say for sure why this is, but we definitely have some theories such as it's less censored. It is something that you can watch over and over again. So, you can re experience it multiple times in a very truncated time frame um.
0: okay, and so that that so we'll talk about that the the saturation and the and the threshold yeah so what what um are we all we're created differently in terms of uh of the saturation, how many times we can view something or how much what what sort of time we're stacking up, looking at that without any other kind of uh, influence coming in, co- kind of correcting the disposition or correcting our our perspective?
2: Well, I think I was thinking about two things while you were talking about that. And number one, during the time of the JFK assassination, specifically, people weren't as used to seeing these kind of images. So yes, the, it was new, right. Yeah, it was new, so that they could watch them on TV at all after the event you know, may have been particularly distressing. Now people may be a little um, more numb to some of these events, but we did see you know, there was quite a bit of research that was conducted after 9-11 that showed that about four hours was the time, if they had watched more than four hours of media coverage in a day, in the weeks following 9-11, that was a particularly strong predictor of distress. And what findings like this suggest to us is that, you know, it's good to be informed. People want to know what's going on, and people should know what's going on following a collective trauma. However, this sort of repeated exposure over and over again when your people are sort of glued to the television all day long, um, this may have negative effects for your mental and physical health.
0: Well, and the well, let's say what the quality of the coverage is. It is it the discussion of it. It's is it the interview. Is it, uh, is it the uh, the limousine driving down the toward the knoll in Dallas, or is it the airplane slamming into the the World Trade Center? Is it, it what does it matter? What part of the coverage that we're taking in? Well,
2: I think that's something that's very. That many people that are researching trauma are interested in uncovering more. Okay. Um, after 9-11, we certainly saw that people would experience post-traumatic stress symptoms if they had experienced survivor narratives, so especially people that were involved in the relief efforts or firefighters, people like that, they would come back and tell other people what they had experienced, mm-hmm. and then those people would experience heightened distress responses. Um, there was also um, some very influential studies that showed after um, during 9-11, watching people fall from the buildings, so watching people actually mm. die, was yes. um, highly correlated with distress responses. Okay. So, so, yeah, those kind of just horrifying, gruesome images... They really, they really stuck with people, and they, uh, they definitely influenced the distress response
0: with that visual wiring that, um, that deepens that exactly.
2: Oh. Like you see people, you know that those are real people, and and that has a really strong effect on people.
0: <sighs> Taking pause with that. If you've just joined us, my guest on Ask a Leader today is Dana Garfin, and she's studying the psychological, the physiological impacts that a nationally shared trauma, such as the JFK assassination, 9-11, the the Boston Marathon bombings have on us as individuals. Well, I don't know if you have any um, prescription while we're talking about your research about what families, what parents can do with the, as I mentioned earlier, the the very ubiquitous yet decentralized sources coming through on social media, on the internet. We we can have absolutely no idea what young children who can't manage this content, but what they're actually getting exposed to.
2: Well, I think it's really critical for parents to try to limit the amount of time um, and limit the type of information that their children are exposed to following these sorts of disasters, following these sorts of negative events, these violent events. Um, You know, after the Oklahoma City bombing, the findings indicated that children who were nowhere near the bombings experienced very strong distress symptoms. And indeed, after the 9-11 terrorist attacks, children in London experienced distress responses. So these sorts Mm -hmm. of images, these sorts of events, when children are exposed to them, they are particularly... at risk for negative psychological responses. So I think parents can play a really important role in limiting their children's exposure to these types of medicine.
0: Yes, I, I guess it's self-evident about that role, and it's yeah. just the, the question is how with yet another way of that content coming through, and in such a casual way, and as we were talking about, with less and less of a filter, no vetting, that kind of a thing. It's, it's, we can take that up with another colleague about family research and that kind of thing as, as some yeah. of their prescriptions, and, and that School of Social at Psychology and Social Behavior covers all of those angles, so that some yeah. a prescription I'd like to take up with other colleagues for sure. Yeah,
2: exactly. And I mean, if you think about it, these children that have cell phones, you know this this information is available for them oh. to access.
0: Hot and cold running. Yeah. Content. <laughs> so. Well, let's talk about the trauma experienced uh, during the painful event. Now, what do we know about people who have start who've lived who were born after? like the JFK assassination, or a lot of young people have been born after 9-11, are they also prone to some kind of trauma, even though it wasn't in real time that they, as uh, as individuals, were experiencing that?
2: Well, I would say there's not been a lot of research to support that specifically, Um, so I think that that is a really interesting question, and I think it's something that uh, could definitely be explored in empirical research. I can say that there has been studies that have shown that watching anniversary coverage of traumatic events is is associated with increased distress responses, and we can certainly see that people can experience delayed psychological distress. So at the time of the event, they may not have experienced a heightened distress response, but subsequently, even years later, the distress response can emerge. So whether that extends to people who were not born at the time, I don't think there's been extensive research about that. Um, I believe there's been a few studies that have looked at that in regards to um, the Holocaust, but uh-huh. I, I think in general that that's pretty limited, although... It's the
0: connection that would matter.
2: It, yeah, yeah. I think, it's a, I think it's the connection more than... Um, I don't think people... There haven't been a lot of studies that have looked at whether seeing... Historical events, seeing media coverage of historical events influences um, distress responses in people that were not alive or cognizant during that time period.
0: Well, it's interesting you're talking about the, the persons who are sub- subjected, presented new data. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the commemorations, and I'll vouch for some of the the uh, accounts I have never uh, been privy, and I think a lot of people haven't, because some of these accounts were kept private for obvious reasons. These people had enough to to process their immediate uh, what what they witnessed, and I'll vouch for my reading an account of uh, an emergency room nurse in the L.A. Times uh, yesterday, and I thought, oh, well, hadn't even it hadn't even occurred to me what what was it like with uh, in this unprecedented situation uh, decisions that were made and the conduct of the physician and how she 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 in herself was trying to figure out what she said everything was out of context but it was a very in a way kind of graphic and I wouldn't have uh, I wouldn't have thought about that so it sort of enlivened for me uh, what uh, what was going on then that I of course wasn't even thinking about in fourth grade or when I was 24 or 34 so it it that the, they are vivid and I guess there's just more, more ways to present the material with, uh, again, to our decentralized media outlets of, of sorts. So it's a, uh, you're, you're very right about the commemoration. So, um, and you were born after that, so that doesn't have the same kind of effect. Then, therefore, on you, as, as would nine uh, eleven. You were an undergrad at that time, or almost an undergrad.
2: Um. Yeah. I vi- well, I vividly recall where I was during nine eleven. I remember my. I was in college, and my roommate came and said, we're being attacked, and we ran out, and we watched the Twin Towers fall um, in real time. And I think a lot of people have these very vivid, flashbulb memories of, of these events occurring. You know, I haven't thought as much about this kind of vicarious exposure um, to a historical event like the JFK assassination, although I definitely can recall vividly you know, images of this, so whether okay. that has a sort of lasting psychological uh, impact on people in my generation, I think, is, is unclear, although, um, you know, I, I would caution everybody to limit the amount of, the, limit the amount of time they spend sort of hearing the gruesome or watching graphic images, although, you know, I think it's very important for us as a society to sort of commemorate the loss and honor the memory of people. You know I think that that's that can be something different than sort of watching horrifying images over and over again
0: so a, a, a distinction between uh the a lurid a coverage as um as opposed to just a factual this is what this it really happened this was the i mean <laughs> it 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 wasn't a, it it wasn't fiction it really happened but exactly. with uh, short of the the lurid part but I have to say though sometimes I don't think. I don't think it registers with us, though, Dana. Until a lurid detail, but I guess you're saying uh, the the impact is when we're saturated with that aspect of it. And, correct?
2: Uh yeah, I think so. I think that I think more research is needed before I could make a strong statement about it either way. But I would say that there are ex- strong findings that increased media exposure is.
0: Stronger correlative of distress. Well, I, I guess I. But when we're closing here, I'd like to ask. Now, Oliver Stone's had a real crack at um, his own theories about what uh, what was around this uh, assassination. Who was involved? Motivations and that kind of a thing. And I, I'm going to take him to task. He really saturates his. Uh, media with his own take on this, and I, I feel sort of like a just sort. Of, I've been a I'm an insect pinned to a, pinned to that you know that fiber board here. But he's telling me what he thinks, and so I don't know. Do fictionalize because Oliver Stone for me is fictionalizing what's happened. Do fictionalize accounts deepen the trauma in the way of uh, an Oliver Stone kind of directed piece?
2: Well, again, I'm not sure. There's been uh, very much research about that. Specifically, although I can say that any time that literature has supported that exposure to violent images, you know, such as video games or other kinds of sort of violent events, um, you know, can increase negative responses in people. So I would say anytime you're sort of being exposed repeatedly to images depicting trauma or depicting violence, Um, that does have the potential to elicit negative psychological responses.
0: Whether it's fiction or nonfiction in that sense.
2: Um, Yeah, I I Uh would agree with that.
0: All right. Well, thank you, Dana Garfin, uh, for being on Ask a Leader. Thank you for your time. It's really been good to talk with you today. thank you.
2: It's been uh, great to talk with you as well. Thanks for having me.
0: All the best. Thanks for staying with us, everyone. We'll be right back with Kai Evers, UCI Prof of Humanities, to talk about the trove of artwork in uh, discovered in Munich, how the German press is covering we're covering it, and the unfolding of those events. Stay with us. We'll be back in just a moment. Okay, everybody. Thanks for joining us. That was a street artist who was performing the the Alleluia choral piece that Leonard Cohen had written. I'm not sure which street it is, so we'll uh, have to find more about that at a later date. But anyway, I needed to be reverent. Now, um, for this portion of the show, I'd like to t- direct everyone's attention to the in early November, a German magazine published the existence of a privately held stash of artwork that had been unaccounted for since the Nazi regime took possession of the art that was either considered degenerate art, work which undermined the cultural vision of the Third Reich, or art that was liquidated for money to finance the war machine. The family members in possession of the work have bobbed and woven from the authorities ever since, that is, up until February 2012, taking up these fascinating developments with its commentary on uh, uh, eccentric art lovers and on the German government and media is Professor Kai Evers. He's a German professor at UCI's School of the Humanities. His research interests include modernist literature, German film, European studies, catastrophic imagination, and representations of war, violence, and risk. He comes from the Schleswig-Holstein region, and that is in northern Germany. He moved to the U.S. in the early 1990s in his late 20s. He completed his Ph.D. from Duke University, and prior to his UCI appointment was at Middlebury College. Today, I welcome Kai Evers to Ask a Leader. Hi, Claudia. Hello, hello. So, you two have been following the uh, German press, and you've, uh, when we first uh, talked about doing this program, you've noted some differences and we'll we'll go back to those that uh, differences in the way the Germans and the Americans are covering this story i guess to i'd like to summarize that about four 1, works of art and then the, I've noticed and maybe you have noticed too Kai that there's been a number it's been a sliding number first it was 1400 then 1300 and then over 1500 pieces of work so I guess it just goes to show how difficult it is nailing down the details with this the um, but the son of the uh, Hilde wie sagt man das Hildemann um, Hildeman. Hildeman. Um, the son is the ninety something guy that had this stash in his apartment. His father died in a car accident in fifty six and so ever since then, the son um, is a recluse of questionable mental faculties seems to have lost his grip on reality except for his financial savvy of living off the selective sales of pieces of work to support him so um let 's talk about the um the situation that first what happened. Why do you think it took so long and uh, which magazine, I'd like to know, sprung this story finally? What took so long between the time that the German authorities found this work in his Munich apartment and this, uh, I mean, if the magazine that I'd like you to let us know, what, if you know which one it is, um, how long... Uh, much longer it might have taken for this art to be uh, finally discovered and therefore dealt with, with the, the so-called the provenance, the ownership, legitimate ownership of of the work.
1: Yeah, it's a very strange story that, that sort of started like a crime novel. really. Yes. I mean, it's it started in September 2010. Right. Uh, on a train between Munich and Zurich, and the border control sort of had the suspicion that an elderly man sort of had Possibly a black account in Switzerland. Yes, he had about fourteen very large amounts of cash with him. Fourteen
0: thousand dollars, but he yes. had in pounds. It's in pounds, but I'm not sure if that was quoting the um, the in the frame of reference the the Guardian in England, or if it was the um. I'm not. It doesn't clear what currency, but fourteen thousand, and it was it was a legal amount. It Was just under the legal ceiling.
1: Yes. So they watched him for a year, and then in, in September 2011, the state issued a search warrant which then was not executed for another five months. It was finally executed in February uh, 2012. And they expected tax evasion. They didn't really expect very much. And when they then searched the apartment, they found this treasure trove of lost art. I mean, yeah, I mean, the numbers differ, but around 1,400 paintings and drawings. And I guess sort of they were stunned by what they found as well. And they kept it from the public that they hired an art historian one single art historian who was then responsible uh, to search for the provenance of these paintings and drawings but they did not go to the press they did not make it public they did not ask the public to help identifying these images and only uh, when the news magazine focus uh, published the story now in November, now suddenly, sort of everything happens very, very quickly uh, sort of the, the whole dynamic suddenly changed
0: so how did you think the art uh, journal got wind of this
1: then um, they 're not entirely sure I mean they might have gotten sort of some information from from officers or not. i mean it 's not quite clear sort of how they initially got the information but ever since more and more sort of basically all the german newspapers are over it and one detail after the other comes out about the father who was the art dealer uh and who probably collected i mean all these artworks or took them into his possession and more and more information about yeah his son was a very strange figure He. Who is not in, the, in Germany, you have to be officially registered. You have to have health insurance and, and, and all these kind of things. This man officially hardly exists in Germany. The, not the, the father.
0: This, the 90-something son of the father who was the art dealer, Cornelius, was not yes. re- he was not registered as a resident of Munich, and he hadn't been paying taxes for, uh, yes. I'm not sure, as long as he's been a Munich resident. but
1: yeah, He never held a job, so he never had to pay taxes. He lived off this art collection as far as we know
0: and that, and we're going to talk about some specifics of how he was able to do that but so and his father I'd like to backtrack a little bit his father also had i guess it's duplicitousness is the dna in the family the father with some jewish heritage had to sort of uh was a bit co-opted in doing some being an agent of the third reich in terms of dealing with their degenerate art uh mission of setting aside Confiscating art and setting it aside as degenerate art—that was, under, as I said, undermining. And maybe you could give me a better, uh, give us all a better frame of reference for all the, the meanings of degenerate art for just a moment.
1: Sure. Um, I mean, in 1930s, I mean, the Hermann, Hildebrand Gurlitt was uh, an art dealer and an art director in the Weimar Republic, and he, he was a defender of modern art. So his story kind of complicates everything we know about these things. Right. Uh, He was removed from his job by the Nazis because he was a non-Aryan. But he then turned to become an art dealer, was well-connected, and eventually the German government, the Nazi government, sort of gave him the task to uh, sell so-called degenerate art, so art that was not... According to the standards of beauty that the Nazi government wanted to celebrate, uh, to sell these uh, artworks uh, abroad to make money for the German government.
0: But it wasn't just the degenerate art that they—it was actually a, an expanding sort of collection that was sold off for the war machine. If I understand yes. it correctly, I mean, so there's yes. so many moving designations and targets in this unfolding story.
1: Yes. No. And, and he was also involved in buying art. So when Germany. Uh, went into France and, and sort of Hermann Göring asked sort of to get sort of European art into Germany for his own collections, uh, he also bought sort of under pressure, putting the sellers under pressure, uh, bought artworks to bring them into Germany. So anything from Albrecht Dürer uh, to uh, more contemporary romantic art.
0: And it, and I think even uh, Adolf Hitler was uh, even furnishing some of this uh Plundered art in Paris, so it's sort there. There, this art was moving around for for different kinds of purposes. So, uh, the fathers, I said, um, oh, he. So they were laying low with this art after the war was over, and then there was that complication of the what we you and I were talking about, the monument. Men, the monuments men, which were that was largely they were the Allied forces. I guess they were largely Americans, and the commander was uh, led astray by Gerlitt, um the uh, the father Gurlitt, uh, by his he, when he was trying to protect the art. He was t- uh, just I think he just had them finally handed over all the all of yeah. the artwork, the monument men, whose purpose earlier was to simply. Save the art, protect the art, and he took possession of all that they—they they had no idea what to do with. That. I think they're overwhelmed, and they were out, they were out classed out played by Gurlitt. So he ends up with a great many of of essential pieces of of work, and then, um, so then when the questions are being asked in the fifties of of this Gurlitt father's uh, his wife, she's able to represent that those works. Are t- lost wherever they were burned in the war, so they're they're sort of moving their the designations and uh, the uh, the the uh, the accounting for all of this art, and they 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 did it. They succeeded in doing it until all this work ends up in this apartment that the exist the current ninety something um, Cornelius Gerlut inherited the apartment from his mother, and there there is the work, and it's been sitting there, and he's it's it's a it's a fetish and a financial mechanism for him.
1: Yes, yes. Yeah, I mean, his father died in the 50s. His mother died in, in 67. And ever since all the paintings seem to have been in his apartment, he was a total recluse. He did not leave the apartment. He did not have social contacts. He did not... He really lived on his own with these artworks. And nobody has seen all the... I mean, these are the most famous uh, German painters of the 1920s and 30s. I mean, it's Max Beckmann, Otto Gross, uh, George Gross, Otto Dix, Paul Klee. I mean, anything you can desire for. Yes, the who's who. And they were all sort of in in these self-made cabinets that he had in his apartment. They seemed to be well preserved, uh, but nobody knew anymore that they existed. Most of them were considered lost during the war or burned during the war. And from time to time, he seems to have gone, driven to Switzerland, sold some paintings off, and lived off those.
0: And for those of you who've just joined us, my guest is German professor Kai Evers, and he is the he's the man of the moment here to help us with this very convoluted plot and with uh, with his uh, background in not only uh, appreciating uh, German cultural, but let's, uh, let's break it down, uh, under his appreciation of German legalistic institutions and the and German media. And so you've, while we're t- talking about these convoluted developments, I'd like for you to give us an idea of that pronounced difference between how the American media and the uh, German media are covering this.
1: In the U.S., the main emphasis is on... Uh, this is art that has been taken away uh, from museums and from private owners, usually sort of Jewish owners, who, who, where the German state took the art away from them or forced them to sell them very cheaply. So there are kind of three different categories in this collection. There is, on the one hand, the so-called looted art, so this is sort of when owners have been forced to sell or the, the paintings simply have been taken away from them.
0: Forced to sell at, at hideously low uh, prices. Yes.
1: yes, and it's documented that, that Gurlit has done that, exactly that. And there's a second category, the so-called degenerate art, that has been taken from German museums. So the Nazi government, sort of once they took power, went into the museums and decided sort of which uh, paintings, drawings sort of uh, followed the German ideal of beauty, the new German ideal of beauty, and which ones not. And they either wanted to destroy, that was the first threat, to destroy this art, uh, or then they realized this this was also a good source for getting money. So in 1937, they made this big exhibition on. Degenerate art, denouncing, sort of uh, purging the German museums, making this exhibition uh, in Munich, uh, and then with a plan then to sell this art abroad. And the third? And the third is uh, drawings and paintings that, that belong to the Gourlet family. I mean, he was an art collector, and a lot of drawings and, and other artwork he bought legally. So for the German, sort of in the American press now, uh, a lot is, is about sort of basically the, the, that sort of this art has been stolen and needs to be returned. In Germany, the discussion is, um, you know, for one, why is the state allowed to take this private collection suddenly from this person? Because he has not really broken any laws according to German laws. At least not, he has not been charged with anything so far. So for, in the German discussion there, there is a lot of debate about sort of on what legal basis did the state take a collection worth more than a billion dollars away from a private person who has not been charged with any crime but it's so the, the, there's a very different sort of approach um, in these two countries
0: in on our side in the in the american media the the, the um or it's i think it's quoting the the german media characterization as the the it's a legal possession but an immoral uh possession so i, I i'm still troubled with how um, that that you can split it that way that um i, I think the way in which he's possessed and coveted i'm sorry possessed these works it's uh, it's been at such a a calculated uh, uh seclusion and and hiding that it's that's it's not just immoral it it's as though he knows there is a legal um barrier to allowing him to continue to hold those but he but because he's I guess uh, just a bit a uh, bit off mentally he's a bit off and he doesn't have any understanding that those works were in other people's living rooms and art galleries he doesn't make yeah. any connections at all so i i mean i legally there one can draw the the ownership back to the pre confiscation step and then I say that's it's no longer a legal possession it's a uh, it's a a, a string of of illegal um, uh, of takings uh, of these uh, it's not just valuable it's their their family their family relics so um i i'm help me out with that distinction that's been made in i guess maybe it's in the German media but it's been made and it's been repeated here
1: i mean that is one of the reasons why um, the German government did not publicize the found. The finding of these artworks for such a long time, they had the plan of first making sure, sort of, the legal basis of every of ownership for every single drawing and painting, and so they worked on that for eighteen months. And kind of, they assumed to have found sort of the ownership for five hundred of them so far. But they so they wanted to take all the time they they have. Uh, to work on their own, to find out to whom these legally belong. And this is, for the Germans, a very important question. Uh, I think it is to them clear that that it is not legitimate what is occurring, but they are working very much on the legal basis. And today the federal prosecutor uh, announced that um, more than 400 of these artworks should be returned to Cornelius Gurlitt as soon as possible.
0: That's one side of the coin, and then the other is. Uh, I'm going to backtrack when you're talking about uh, the, ind- the the very sort of s- small uh, number of personnel involved. But there, there's always been the lostart.de website that would allow so many other people to cooperate and contribute toward legitimizing the actual uh, the, the the legal possession. That it was like the 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 data. Pool. the brain trust was really shrunken under the, uh, the, the, current, the previous sort of German investigation in that the, the ways in which some of the art has been successfully returned to the owners in other cases was because that, that brain trust was opened up to the international public. So I, I, I sort of take exception of the German government's interpretation of, uh, the, uh, of, of who's the committee to determine provenance.
1: Yeah, no, absolutely. And, I mean, in, in the two weeks since it has begun to be publicized, sort of which paintings, which drawings are uh, are in the collection, um, there's much more information now has been come out, sort of to whom it belongs, because it has been publicized.
0: Right. And is there a recognition that that was a, um, that was a vital missing piece in the earlier uh, work?
1: Oh, yes. No, I mean, uh, ever since this newspaper article came out... Uh, this whole story is a complete embarrassment for the German government. And they sort of build one task force after the other now, um, trying to sort of to clear this now as soon as possible. So instead of one art historian, they have now sort of a whole, whole group of art historians who work on this. Uh, and it goes sort of, rather than being localized in, in Bavaria, Munich, the federal government is now taking a bigger role in it. Uh, so this is a very embarrassing story uh, for the Germans, well, how it's, to deal with this
0: and the, aspect? And the point isn't to be embarrassing a regime, a government, but it's that uh, we, we, I'm, I'm feeling the pain of those families. They were victimized once; they're getting victimized. Yet another couple of times with personal effects that aren't getting returned to them. And I, I, I guess we could, I'd like to walk through one sort of case study of one piece that's The Lion Tamer by German artist Max Beckmann, uh, that Gerlap was able to sell in 2011. He sold it, uh, uh aside from the commission, he sold it for $1,017, uh, in Kurn in Cologne in 2011, as I said. And now I just can't understand how that he could have been able to sell that and negotiate a percentage of proceeds that went to a Jewish family that owned that work. Somehow that provenance was determined. How come the Jewish family just wasn't returned to work? Or was that part of a, an understanding is that we'll take the proceeds. We need the money. Uh, this can go to auction. Uh, who, I, do you know anything about how that was negotiated?
1: Um, not not about that one specifically, but one of the general problems with this one is that um, if this Cornelius Gurlitz sort of says, I'm insisting on that this is my possession, he can draw out these processes. I mean, he was good Yes, if he would like to. And you're right. I mean, all the, the, the other legal owners or who can sort of have a legitimate claim to this artwork, they are also in the 80s and the 90s. There's no time to lose. To do this. So, very often they are cut corners and they're made deals, sort of, so that at least some of the money goes to the right owners.
0: I guess they were sort of pressed to at least feel less victimized by right? they'll take a proceeds versus seeing that lovely painting that, were, that was hanging in their rooms, in those salons when they were having satyrs. I mean, it just keeps tying into a larger cultural frame of reference. It just, it's painful to think about. And uh, the other interesting thing I noticed uh, in reference to the lion tamer, it was torn into two pieces. Is there any information about what happened? Was, that, uh, was it during the confiscation or wasn't? Of course, the, the Gerds wouldn't have done that, but do you know anything about that?
1: Um, no, not, not oh. about that painting. Okay, I mean. well, I won't, but, I, yes. But, I mean, in, in general, what initially it had been sort of said that a lot of these drawings and paintings have been in bad condition in his apartment, but the more news come out, the more it seems so that he took relatively good care of them. So he did. He certainly is an art. I mean, he's a very strange art lover. Right. But he certainly is an art lover who would not harm these paintings. In that, sort of, at least not intentionally. And that is part of of this strange story. I mean, yes, they were. The father was an oppure, opportunist who sort of made his own art collection and a lot of money from these artworks and and uh, benefited in this way from the Nazi government. But, but at it, the same time, they were true art lovers of, of classical modernism of their period. And, and so both can go together, sort of an opportunist, opportunist working with the Nazi government and a lover of the art of Paul Klee and Max Beckmann.
0: Right, right. Well, it, it's an extraordinary story, and uh, the, every other day is another revelation. I suppose there's going to be more as the lostart.de, it's a, the German website, German domain, um, will... Um, uh, no doubt accumulate all kinds of data and will be uh, s- dissected, synthesized uh, in the press for, um, those f- for uh, what family members are, are, are going to be able to recover this and um, other, other interesting quirks that are yet to be revealed. So I, Kai Evers, Professor of German uh, Literature at UCI School of Humanities, I really thank you today for joining us on uh, Ask a Leader.
1: Oh thank you very much.
0: That's well, awesome. uh well maybe we can do another show and talk about where it's uh, where it's led us. Okay. Thanks all the best. Take care. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye. Well, thank you everybody for joining us. We might just ask um I didn't get to ask uh Isha <laughs> yeah. who is uh, she's got 5 years of work under her belt with the <laughs> uh with television and radio, but uh I'm going to have to shuffle right along with um you might have some sort of a, a one moment to speak about Uh, what the process is or pitch pitch something about being an intern at this uh, radio station. Yeah, I'm
1: loving it. I think radio has been my love. I've worked in radio in India for five years. I mean, you can imagine how love is you know so as soon as i came to know about this internship i was like yes let grab it and oh, good. you know do it something yeah. well fine
0: well um, i'm glad you're here today you. and um looking forward to hearing your show there's a lot i'm going to learn about <laughs> all things uh, from mumbai to to irvine <laughs> and making that transition and uh the traditions and yeah. legacies and, the, uh, and the, the ones that you're adopting here. So I, yeah. folks, as you know, I love to bring up some announcements. I have a few here. Next week, the Irvine City Council will once again convene to take up the new proposal presented by Five Point Communities to build out the great park in their own image. I say witnessing the process underway has abundant yields. And to chronic it, chronicle it would be to place an article in each section of the newspaper, the Metro News, the opinion page, sports, and the art sections. I'll be there next Tuesday, as I have yet to find meaningful coverage in the rest of the media, so I've got to see it for myself. The slight exception of that media coverage is uh, uh, an improved coverage from the voice of OC. Hats off to Nick Gerda for giving it a better effort in this many-faceted story. And also, I'm going to be watching my previous guest on Ask a Leader and Real People of Orange County Jessica uh, Bravo and 10 other activists whose five-day hunger strike began yesterday outside of Congressman Ed Royce's office there, and I believe it's in orange. Well, that's all the time we have today on Ask a Leader. Next week, while the students have a little time off over the long Thanksgiving week, I'll be having uh, Irvine Unified School District student body, Office holders here to get a look under their hoods or under their hoodies. And I've also got designs on alternatives to shopping for next week's Black Friday. I'd like to hear from you. Take your suggestions as well about alternatives to that shopping ritual. I run the other direction. I guess you know that about me by now. And my email address for your submittals is cshambaugh at org talk to you next week. Thank you, everybody, for listening.